the QMC Board and Collar Series for EMS Professionals welcomes you to Excuse My Medic, the podcast version of an MCI with Gary Harvath, Chuck Humphrey, and Ed Marasco. Excuse My Medic takes a unique look at today's emergency medical service with news and information, opinionated discussions, lively talk, sporadic jabs, and even a few belly laughs from our world of emergency medical services. Excuse My Medic is brought to you by Quick Med Claims, a national leader in emergency medical service revenue cycle management and reimbursement consulting. Now, hang on to the bench seat and tighten your lap belt as these old guys from EMS Past take you on a Code 3 ride without touching the brakes. You've had the disclaimer, and if you're still brave enough to stick it out, let's get started. Take it away, guys. Good day, everyone. My name is Gary Harvat, and I'm from the client services team at QuickMed Claims. And I'm Chuck Humphrey, and I'm from the business development team over here in the Danville office. And joining us today, folks, believe it or not, we've got a new member of our team. Ed Marasco, who's the vice president of business development for QuickMed Claims, is joining us as our new partner, and we are delighted. Chuck, are we delighted or what? I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, especially since he's my boss, you know. Well, today we're all equals, Chuck. And, okay. You know, we're even allowed to throw stones at him along oh, the way boy. to do that. So I'll look forward to that. No holds barred here. But, Absolutely. you know, Good morning. For, I'm glad to be here, guys. Thanks for letting me join the fun. Well, we're glad to have you, Ed. For those of you that don't know Ed, uh, Ed's been a, a fixture in the air medical side of the business for many, many years. Uh, he's been actively involved with the Association of Air Medical Services for more than 20 years. He served as a, as a member of the Fixed Wing Committee and the Finance and Reimbursement Committee. He served on the Ames Board of Directors as the Chairman of the Finance Reimbursement Committee. Uh, and Ed, uh, one of the great things that Ed has done for the air medical industry, and it's one of many, uh, has he represented the association and, and negotiated the rulemaking process to establish a new ambulance reimbursement fee schedule for the Medicare program. And uh, he's been highly, highly decorated. Uh, I think one of the great awards that Ed has received over his course of his career was the Marriott Carlson Award, which is given uh, by the air medical industry, very prestigious award. So we are honored to have Ed not only as our colleague, but actually as one of the facilitators of Excuse My Medic. And uh, it's, it, we're glad to have him here for not only this first show, but many more to come, we hope. So with that, hey, I'll just kind of kick it around here a little bit. Chuck, what's been new with you? Well, I'll tell you, I've uh, been visiting a couple trade shows, and it's been good. I've got to see some uh, folks across the country uh, in EMS. Uh, uh, I love interacting with uh, new EMS people that I get to meet all the time. So uh, it's been fun, and i got a couple more coming up. So looking forward to uh, meeting you guys out there. Uh, if you're going to be uh, AAA, you're going to be up at the Wisconsin EMS or even AB3, ABC 360 next week. Uh, in Hershey, uh, make sure you stop over. Gary and I will be there uh, in Hershey, and uh, uh, that's always a good time in Chocolate Town. So we're looking forward to uh, interacting with you. Make sure you stop by and see us. You know, I love going to Hershey, uh, Chuck, for many reasons, but the biggest reason I like going to Hershey is the restaurants serve chocolate butter. It's unbelievable, and it's probably the most unhealthy thing one can ingest, but it is unbelievable. For those of you folks who are listening who've never been to Hershey, go to the Hershey Lodge, 
order a big lo- loaf of bread and just get a ton of chocolate butter. <laughs> your, your arteries will never forgive you, but it tastes so great going down. Trust me. So, Ed, how about you? You've been a traveling man too. I have been, yeah. We've been on the road quite a bit. Uh, just got back from uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And, of course, uh, we are rapidly approaching – uh, our, uh, our visits to Atlanta for the Air Medical Transport Conference this year, which is always one of our favorites. Uh, and I guess, Gary, you'll be there, myself, and a number of the members of the senior leadership team here. We're very excited to, to do that. Of course, we have a client event uh, on Sunday evening, which is always wonderful to see our friends from around the industry. It is great. Yeah, looking forward to it. Great. Well, good. Well, I've been doing well. As, uh, I've been traveling a bit too. Um, thankfully, uh, not as much as, as you guys. So I've been able to spend some time at home. You know, we're having a big Thanksgiving dinner at the Harvat house. We've got 23 people coming. And oh so I have already vacuumed under our bed in our bedroom about three or four times. So not sure which one of our guests is going to be looking under our bed, but let me tell you, it is white glove under there. White glove. No so, dust bunnies. No, no dust bunnies. You can take your Thanksgiving plate, crawl under the bed, and eat it and not worry about a thing. <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny. Uh, I remember the, probably about 10, 12 years ago when my youngest was small. She loved mashed potatoes. And I know you're a big mashed potato fan. We got a picture of her sitting underneath the table while the rest of us were doing our post-meal conversation. And she has the bowl of mashed potatoes and she's got a spoon and she's <laughs> eating them. I think it's one of my favorite pictures of my Alicia that I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, as most people here will attest, you ha- hit the nail on the head, Chuck. Mashed potatoes are truly my weakness in life. And fortunately, before my daughter got married, I lost a number of pounds. And the way I did that was staying off the mashed potatoes. But it, it, it literally killed me. Literally killed me. It was yeah, tough. Hey, hey, Chuck, here's a funny story on Gary. So uh, as you may know, we're on, we have one wedding left of three in a row in 18 months. But at the first wedding, Gary and, and Terry came to the wedding. It was my middle son Adam's wedding. And uh, we had these uh, Chinese takeout containers for the famous Pittsburgh cookie table deal. You know, yes. you take a bunch home. There's a rumor. I, I didn't witness it. <laughs> I was engaged. There's a rumor that Gary filled up an entire Chinese takeout container of mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> I do not at all find that surprising, Ed. <laughs> uh, I must attest that is not rumor. That is 100% truth. And let me tell you, they tasted great on Saturday morning for breakfast after the, or Sunday morning for breakfast. There was a, oh, good oh, my good stuff. So anyway, folks, uh, let's just get back to business here. Somehow we have really digressed. Terribly, we ha- terrible. We have no chemistry here. Um, but anyway, Ed, a uh, couple uh, episodes ago, we did a, a uh, some information on surprise ambulance billing, and Chuck was nice enough to do a very nice presentation. Uh, but since that time, this is a uh, ball that tends to continue to spin and get larger, and there's been some legislative oomph behind it. So if you'd be kind enough to kind of, if you can, update us on um, this whole issue and any legislation, it would be greatly appreciated because I know you've been following this very closely. Well, yeah, and thanks, Chuck and Gary, for, for your leadership and sort of um, bringing us up to speed uh, in the first go-around on this. And you're right, this thing has been sort of out of control. You know, it's funny, a couple of years ago, the term surprise medical billing uh, was used to describe to really what amounts to a disconnect between insurance coverage and the clinical care and services that our patients need. And unfortunately, much of the media coverage and associated propaganda, uh, you know, would help, would make the less aware consumer 
um, sort of come to the conclusion that the issue is about exorbitant charges. And the reality is the growth in charges in emergency services over the last few years really sort of helped to bring this issue into the public eye. But the real underlying issue is, is a failure of the U.S. healthcare system to sort of align those incentives um, between the, the payers, um, the patients, the employers, and the suppliers and providers that are out there. There's a disconnect there. And uh, the challenge is um, this is not a new issue, and it's pretty complex, and it's certainly not limited to the transport community. I think one of the things that brought this to the forefront is the fact that a lot of people don't realize that hospital emergency departments, the hospital itself has a fee, and then a physician group, which is oftentimes separate, has a fee, and the hospital might be in network, but the physician group may not. And so the patients come to the emergency department thinking it's an affiliate of their local insurance product and it's in network and they get their hospital bill. And of course, it's all handled except for the appropriate copays. And then lo and behold, the physician group sends a bill and they've got a huge out-of-pocket expense for the professional side. So, uh, you know, I think that along with some of the things in the air medical transport industry particularly sort of brought this issue to the forefront. And so um, it really comes down to an in-network versus out-of-network problem. Um, you know, when a provider and supplier uh, does not believe that they're going to get adequate payment by being in-network, they elect to be out-of-network, which puts the patient on the hook uh, for the balance. And then on the other side of the coin, the payers are looking at what their spend is on uh, the types of services, whether it be emergency department care or surgery, ambulatory surgery, or, or uh, in this case, uh, today we're talking about medical transport, then they're forced to try and find ways to reduce the spend and make uh, make that cost match the premium dollars uh, in a reasonable way. And so they do things like creating a narrow network of providers where they can sort of manage the process, the quality factors, and and certainly um, have an impact on what they pay for the services. So that that's really where you get to uh, performance expectations and negotiated rates. The problem we have in emergency services is that transparency that exists on the elective side. Hey, I'm, I got to go have surgery. My physician says I need to have something fixed. I can go and I can find a provider that is in network and go to a place, a facility, an ambulatory surgery center, for example, that's in network to make sure I'm all good. At three o'clock in the morning uh, when I'm having chest pain, I don't generally have that visibility into the system. And so I call an ambulance. I get an ambulance. I go to the local emergency department. And they say, geez, Mr. Morasco, we can't help you here. We've got to fly you to Pittsburgh and uh, get that care that you need. And so the helicopter comes and takes me. And through that whole process, I don't have the opportunity to sort of assess what that means for me, both clinically, operationally, and certainly financially. So that's the, that's the rift. You know, the air medical transport part of this bubbled up, uh, became uh, sort of top of the debate a couple of years ago because of a couple things. There were some negative stories about individual patients in the media. Several state efforts to regulate air medical transport, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit um, in a few minutes about the Airline Deregulation Act. And then um, because of some of that stuff, uh, you know, over the course of time, over the last four or five years, probably a dozen or more lawsuits now that have been filed by patients in a sort of a class action kind of way to dispute these charges and their obligations to pay under the out-of-network scenario. So that's really brought this thing to the, to the top. And uh, there's some data out there that also, um, you know, endorses or at least reinforces what the patients are saying. Um, and that is, uh, you know, the GAO did a recent study. Um, they studied patient 
transports back from 2017 and found that about 69% of those transports are actually out of network, which is true. And that creates that, those scenarios where there's extra burden uh, on the patients. The other thing is, is that over a period of time, um, the median charge for both helicopter, um, rotor wing and fixed wing transports has increased substantially. And now we're in, we're in the area where uh, for helicopter, it's the average median is $36,000 a trip. And uh, you know, there are stories where that number is approaching $60,000 now based on the you know, length of the transport in the area and all that sort of thing. So we're not talking about small dollars here. We're talking about you know, obligations on the part of the patients that are causing people to you know, lose their house, uh, have to file bankruptcy. Um, you know, in the old days, and I think uh, I was one of QuickMed's first air medical clients. I think our average charge at University Hospitals Medevac up in Cleveland um, was about 5,000 bucks a trip. And that wasn't that long ago. This was in 1998. So the price of poker, as they say, has gone way up. And uh, that, of course, creates a challenge as well. Then you add to the fact that the sheer number of programs around the country and uh, the number of transports has grown exponentially over the last 20 years. And, and so a problem that, you know, back in the early 90s um, was not that, you know, prevalent, uh, didn't, there weren't that many air medical bills being sent out. Now we're, you know, we've grown to where there's helicopters in almost every corner of the country and, uh, and you know, an average of, uh, you know, 40 flights a month for a typical air medical base, um, those numbers start to add up. And there's a thing called the Adams database uh, that gives you a nice look around the country of sort of uh, what the, uh, you know, where the, the programs, where the base sites are located, and, and it gives you circles, uh, response ring circles. And, and there's very few places that there's not a circle covering it. Some of the more rural areas in the, in the Great West are probably not as heavily covered. So, and of course, a lot of negative press. And and the, the press has been everything from, um, you know, cost to charges to overutilization. And then, of course, there have been some safety issues over the years as well, which has uh, brought some coverage to the air medical transport industry. So, you know, how do we solve this problem? We've got this gap. And, um, you know, essentially, there are, there are sort of three solutions that over the course of time people have talked about. One is a free market solution. Um, and that happens in many aspects of healthcare delivery. Uh, competition creates a set of operating and financial norms and expectations that drive a relationship between uh, you know payers providers and suppliers and of course the patients um, at the heart of all this the problem is in emergency services that free market norm is kind of muted because you don't have the ability to select based on knowing the quality of one particular provider over another you go to the place that's close and, and oftentimes it's not even your choice you might be unconscious and you end up someplace uh, because of some provider that's trying to do the right thing for you. So, of course, there's a regulatory solution. Um, you know, some with other healthcare services, there are local, regional, and state regulatory agencies that might have an impact on how healthcare is delivered and how it's uh, paid for. Uh, unfortunately, in this circumstance, uh, air medical transport has been sort of carved out from that by the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, which sort of uh, regulates, talks about the uh, governments not being able to regulate uh, rates, routes, and structures related to commercial aviation operations. So when there has been that effort on the part of regulatory agencies uh, to step in and create some regulatory solution, um, that's been thwarted by uh, the fact that the ADA governs uh, the Part 135 part of the world, um, you know, that, that handles the aviation portion of air medical transport. 
And so here we are today, we've arrived at the fact that the legislative approach is, is really, um, you know, one of the only ways left, a lot of folks believe, to tackle this issue. And so, you know, earlier this year, and, and uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this in Congress, there's sort of bipartisan discussion in Congress, and earlier this year, even the president weighed in on surprise billing um, and the need for some legislative response. So in June, um, you know, the Senate uh, Health Committee, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee took up this issue. There's also companion, and I'm sorry, that's the Senate side. There's also a companion uh, legislation that was proposed on the House side, the Energy and Commerce Committee, um, to try and resolve this issue. And the idea is to uh, force or drive um, these providers to be in network, because when they're in network, that changes sort of the relationship between the patient, the payer, and the provider or supplier. Uh, and the expectation is, is that um, if we can get more folks to be in network legislatively, that will reduce the rub. Unfortunately, there's not a really good and easy way to do that, and there are some consequences. So uh, one of the provisions in both sets of legislation that are sort of being considered, and by the way, there's tons of variations of this and proposed uh, amendments and such, but the core elements of, uh, of both sides uh, of, uh, of Congress that are taking this up are uh, number one is network matching. So how do, we, how do we reduce that scenario where if a hospital's in network and I'm working with the hospital to get my care needs met, the, the other entity that's not necessarily the same as the hospital doesn't have to adhere to the same guidelines. So the idea is um, to force, whether it's a physician, emergency physician practice or a pathology group or an aeromedical transport agency to actually honor and be consistent with how the hospital uh, is approaching the in-network versus out-of-network discussion. And there's some issues with that. Obviously, you know, the economic situation for a hospital, which tends to have much more influence with a third-party payer than an individual physician group or an individual private air medical transport provider, you know, creates some, some challenges uh, in terms of being able to, you know, make it appropriate for both parties. So um, that's not a great thing. There's also some regulations out there, and I, I did, was doing some research on this, and I, I forgot all about this, but... There's actually a corporate practice of medical laws provision and many state legislatures have passed and the, and it's the express purpose of this uh, law is to prevent physician and facility collusion um, with respect to payers and of course ultimately patients and the cost. So if something like this were to get passed, there's gonna be a challenge for legal folks and for corporate folks to figure out how to honor this legislation but also not get on the wrong side of this other, these other regulations that apply that are meant to sort of keep up almost like a Chinese wall between uh, the physician groups and the hospitals. And of course, the big thing is, if we, you do drive us to be in network, how in the world are we gonna decide what a fair price is? So some folks are suggesting that we establish a, a you know, broad benchmark that would apply to all types of services, whether it's physicians or transport or whatever else. And of course, the first thing everybody goes to is, well, the Medicare fee schedule, because that's the gold standard. And so. You know, people talk about, uh, and one of the suggestions is to be 125% of the Medicare rate for whatever service that is, a physician level three visit, an air medical transport, an ALS two level transport. And we all know, because we've been around for a while, that we know that, that that fee schedule is nowhere near approximating the cost of providing services for, certainly for transport, it's like that for many other types of healthcare delivery. So here we are, we could be pinned to a scenario where we almost surely are not gonna get paid, reimbursed an adequate amount, and there's a lot of folks who are concerned about uh, physician groups and others, including transport, not being able to continue to operate under those economic conditions. So how do you fix that? Well, 
how do you, you know, there's going to be a dispute about the number. If we can't come up with a benchmark everybody agrees on, then we have to have a dispute resolution approach to that. How are we going to get the payers and the providers to agree what that rate's going to be to be in network? And so we've, we've heard a variety of things from baseball type arbitration. You know, you give a number, I give it a number, and an independent third party puts the two numbers together and comes up with some, some number in between based on some logic. Um, you know, that's one approach. There's a lot of concern with that. I think the insurance side is very concerned about that. Um, on the provider side, hospital association and others have expressed some concern about it, but maybe a little more comfortable with that than perhaps the benchmark approach. And then there's even been a suggestion recently, as recently as a month or so ago, um, where uh, one prominent legislator proposed that we go to a full-scale negotiated rulemaking process again. So let's sit down, get the parties at the table like we developed the original ambulance fee schedule, and let's figure this out. The challenge there is, you know, that process took two years, um, and then another probably year and a half after that to fully implement the thing, or maybe even two years. So it was about a four-year exercise to get from present state to new state with respect to the ambulance fee schedule. And so if we go the, if we go the negotiated rulemaking route, um, it's not going to bring relief to the patients and providers and payers anytime soon. So there's some pushback uh, on that as well. So it's a complicated issue, um, and it was moving along quite well the beginning part of this year. There was a lot of momentum, again, as I mentioned, bipartisan support to address this issue. The president was willing to sign legislation um, if, it could be, uh, if it could be developed with you know, both bicameral uh, support uh, in Congress. And uh, then a couple of other things happened. Um, since that time. Number one, the provider side had been relatively quiet. So during the summer recess, the physician groups, the hospital groups, the transport groups have pumped millions of dollars into advertising um, to get raise the awareness on the part of the general public about this issue. We know you have a question or problem, but this isn't the way to solve it because it's going to create problems. You might not be able to find a cardiac physician or emergency physician in your area if they can't get adequately reimbursed. So you have that going on. There's been a push to over, overhaul the Stark Law, which is a 1998 law, uh, 1989 law, um, that sort of drives a lot of the relationships between healthcare institutions. You know, some believe it's a barrier to creating truly integrated um, uh, delivery and financing systems, which many believe will drive up quality and drive down cost. There's, of course, drug price legislation. You can't open up the paper, look at anything online these days without hearing about the high cost of pharmaceuticals. Um, and you may have read about this, gentlemen. I'm not sure if you've been uh, following any of this, but there, there, might have been, there may be a few hearings going on in Washington, D.C. about impeachment these days, um, which certainly has changed the cooperative tenor of things in Congress with respect to the executive branch. Um, so all those things have uh, drastically changed the level of momentum with respect to surprise medical billing. Um, now, on the other hand, there's still some feeling, if you read the journals, that um, you know, there might be uh, an opportunity before the end of the legislative session, and we're getting pretty close to that now, um, to have this issue addressed as a part of a larger healthcare spend bill. So they might get some support for something larger, and they might tack this on. So again, tricky, tricky maneuvers from a legislative perspective. But um, um, there's a whole lot going on in Washington, D.C. right now that leads a lot of folks to believe that it won't, won't get handled. Ed, I have a question for you. Um, you know, you've given us some great facts and information, as you've seen and read. But, you know, you've got a great background in this industry. You understand the reimbursement side. What's your gut? Where is it going to end? 
where, what do you think it's going to look like at day's end? Look, I, it's a great question, G. I, I think there's no way that we can continue to see the, the price increases and the patient obligation part of this continue, both on the, on the general emergency side as well as on the transport side. I think there has to be some rationalization in the market. And, and as you guys know, EMS in general and transport is a high fixed cost business. And so, um, you know, to put the truck on the road and, and staff it and provide insurance and all that before you even turn a rotor or roll the wheels out the door is very expensive. And so what you have to find is a way to reduce cost to be as efficient as you can, which means driving up utilization um, uh, to make it very efficient so that people can survive on um, less reimbursement and not less than we have now, but less than the charges, let's say, that, that it takes right now to get to a reasonable level of reimbursement. I mean, you know, on the air medical side, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, it's anywhere from eight to $15,000 a trip to, to do it and do it in a high quality way. And you've got average reimbursement around the country. It varies quite a bit. Uh, you know, mission profiles vary as well. So there's more or less loaded miles, but you know, people are getting paid seven or 8,000 bucks of transport. So the system right now can't support um, the current cost structure, even on the reimbursement we have now, which, which includes those, you know, incredibly high charges on the commercial side and non-participating providers and all that. So there's got to be some solution. Yeah, and good, good stuff. You know, what I worry about is, uh, I worry too about two things, you know, being around for three decades in EMS. I worry that people still don't understand what we do. Um, and so that sticker shock, when you start talking 15, 20, $30,000, that's, it, it, I understand why people would have, you know, take a deep breath on that, especially if I were responsible for that. But on the other side of it, we still have the best air medical system in the world. And anytime we start playing with dollars and cents, what's going to happen to that really concerns me, especially, you know, we talked about this the last time Gary and I batted around in the most rural areas, you know, you're talking about the plain states where you have hundreds of miles in between um, tertiary care centers and, and these services are vital. You know, what is going to happen uh, if, if, the, the dollars and cents structure doesn't support the system, um, it really concerns me. And, and it concerns me that people see us, and I say us in the industry, as the bad guys. All we're trying to do is pay the bills and keep the service going, you know, and, and that's a hard sell. Uh, it really is. But, uh, um, you, you know, you make a good point. It costs a lot of money to put that ship up in the air, put that ambulance out in the street, um, and somebody's got to pay that bill. And, that, and that's my ultimate concern is what happens down the road. Yeah, Chuck, that's a great point. I mean, think about it. You look at rural America, and that's where particularly air medical transport, but even good, um, high-quality ALS uh, capability is most needed. And because of the belt tightening in healthcare already over the last you know, decade or two, uh, and I forget the statistics, but I know it's double digits uh, of rural health systems, rural hospitals that close every year. And uh, so now you're further away from where you can get definitive care and transport becomes all the more important. And it creates a burden on the transport system at a time now when we're talking about ratcheting back the, the uh, reimbursement. And you're right, it's, it's uh, very costly to provide high quality care in those areas. You know, look, if you're doing 60 flights a month, um, that's a different cost structure than if you're doing 25. But those 25 out there in, you know, the Plain States or rural, you know, Wyoming, we, uh, for a long time on the air medical side, we had uh, a flight of Wyoming. 
up there in Casper. We were the only game in town. In fact, we used to fly the physicians out to rural clinics to provide specialty care. We'd load up a fixed wing in the morning and fly them out to some outpost somewhere to be there all day and then fly them back at night because it was the only place to make it reasonable. They couldn't drive. It would have taken them longer to drive than the shift was during the day to provide the care to the patients. So, uh, it's yeah, we provide um, we provide service. I know to a uh, a ground ambulance in Alaska that's completely landlocked, waterlocked around. So they literally transport the patient to a clinic, stabilize, call in uh, air medical. And that's the only route to a care facility that's beyond a clinic, um, you know, but you're talking three, four runs, maybe, uh, you know, a year, <laughs> but it's still vital when it's needed. It's needed. How do you pay those bills? I, it, it's really a conundrum, no doubt about it. Yeah, it sure is. Something's got to give, you know, for sure. And how about the election? Do you think the the election coming up in 2020 will be, will slow this down, speed it up? What's your thoughts? Oh, goodness. You know, I think, um, you know, it's going to be a distraction. You know how election year politics exactly. goes. Um, uh, folks are jockeying for position and they want, they want certain things high profile. Of course, healthcare has been for the last, uh, you know, probably four or five presidential cycles, if not more, some would argue more than that, has been, you know, in the forefront of almost every set of debates. And so we haven't figured it out yet um, as a country, but I think um, these kinds of things uh, can get slowed down or can be, can be brought to the forefront if, if somebody latches onto this. And this is something, this is an issue that affects a broad uh, cross-section of the population. This is not just something you know, we're not talking about attacking Medicare. So the older folks get, you know, the AARP group gets fired up about this. This is, there's stories about, you know, I read a story a couple of weeks ago about a, a poor mom who, who had a uh, premature birth and, and the baby had to be flown and she ended up with a $55,000 bill. And, you know, so it's, it's little ones to, you know, the folks in their eighties who get impacted by this, um, you know, families. So it's, it's going to be, it's not going to go away. No. It's not at all. It's a, it's a subject, and I'm sure for our listeners' sake, we will promise you to keep you up time and time again, and I will tell you, there will probably will be more updates. Ed, thank you for that information. Again, always a, a wealth when it comes to information like this, and, and thanks so much for, for being prepared and uh, responding to this ongoing question that's, that looms out there in this industry. <coughs> So let's uh, let's move on a second here. Um, you know, there's always some great stories that come out between broadcasts, and I think we've got a few of them today. Chuck, what do you say we let the new guy go first, huh? Yep, go go get him, bud. All right, we're really, we're really leaning on him. Today. Oh, big time! Let's do it. Hey, Chuck, we can't do it after the show's over. We might as well do it now, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> he pu- he pulls rank on us after the show. We're in trouble right now. We're on uh, level level ground. <laughs> yeah. By the way, listeners, don't let them fool you. Uh, I work for these guys 24-7. <laughs> I can only to my wife, Joyce. Really <laughs> You're uh, on, Ed. I, call, I think they call that servant leadership, isn't it? I read servant leadership, yep. <laughs> and you're pretty good at it, too, bud. Uh, well, hey, listen, I appreciate the opportunity to go first today. I've got some great news for you guys, and, I, and you may be aware about this, but our listeners might not be aware, but... Um, uh, you know, we're we're very proud of our client base and the work that they do. And really, to be honest, and, and I know we have a good time doing this. Um, I'm having a blast today. But 
one of the serious notes is we, we do recognize and our staff recognizes how important the work that our, our clients do every day, taking care of sick folks around the country and our, our critical care transport uh, clients um, do a tremendous job and, and there's a, you know, I could, we could go on with tons of stories, but one of our, one of our longstanding clients, HealthNet, which is a statewide program covering West Virginia, was just named by the Association of Air Medical Services as the Air Medical Program of the Year, which uh, it's sort of the cream of the crop of the cream of the crop. As you know, these agencies around the country that do this um, are very, very good at what they do. And we've always known about HealthNet because we work with them for such a long time, but they've always been one of the most respected programs around and uh, they're, from their commitment to safety and, and quality. I mean, they have a full scale helicopter and a hangar down there. They do clinical training in the back of the helicopter. Um, it's incredible. Uh, the commitment to safety and the technology on the aircraft is wonderful. But um, in early October, uh, the folks from HealthNet were notified um, that they were, they were uh, selected as program of the year. They'll receive their award at the Air Medical Transport Conference here in Atlanta on November 4th. And this is a really unique thing because it's typical in the industry for these nominations to come from somewhere within the family. So a sponsoring hospital or an EMS agency in the area that works with them may nominate them. Uh, but the nomination for HealthNet actually came from a, a program that's uh, an industry leader that's based in Canada who came to the program uh, to visit with them and learn some things and, and share some things with them and was so impressed by uh, what they saw uh, and the people that they work with at HealthNet that they actually did the nomination. So they're really nominated by their peers uh, from around, uh, around the world and it's a tremendous honor. So we're, we couldn't be happier for, the, for Clinton Burley and the, and the team at HealthNet. Um, and it's interesting, uh, if you talk to Clinton about it, he'll tell you this, and, and you guys have heard him say this too. Um, it's not about him, it's not about leadership. Uh, they have a concept called One Team, uh, which is, it's from the guy that sweeps the floors and cleans the bathrooms at night to the communicator who's making sure that the crew gets dispatched appropriately and goes to the right location, to the flight nurse and flight paramedic who are, who are caring for the patient in the back, um, and even to the finance folks who help make sure they're being uh, good stewards of the resources. It's a team effort to offer the service the way they do. And um, of course they do it, they do it well. So congratulations, hats off to HealthNet. Couldn't be happier. For Gee, Ed, I've been touching the air medical side of the industry since the eighties. And just going back through the cobwebs here, I can't ever remember hearing of another program nominating another program. That's, that has to be a first. I believe so. I'm not aware either, Gary, yeah. this happened before. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, uh, that's great. Well, congratulations to our great friends at HealthNet Air Medical Services. We're proud of you. We're proud to play a small role in what you do. And uh, we can't wait to see you in Atlanta in a couple weeks. So kudos to them. Chuck, do you got anything for us? Yeah, I do. So uh, we'll go from a large organization to a grassroots organization. Our client... Close to me here, actually, to give you guys some geographical reference, I would say, like we say here in PA, over the hill from Happy Valley. So on the other side of the mountain from Penn State is uh, a little bitty company, uh, Beach Creek Blanchard Volunteer Fire Company, and they serve Clinton and part of Center Counties, and they just celebrated their 80th anniversary. And the cool story about them is um, they, this actually dates back to um, – Prior to their even organizing, in the late 1800s, um, there was a line of duty death um, at the old train station 
in um, in Beach Creek there, which Beach Creek literally is this small little hamlet, beautiful little place uh, nestled down in the valley. But um, there was a, they were unloading a steamer, uh, and um, there was an accident, and they had a line of duty death. So when they started studying for the 80th anniversary celebration, they found these records, and so they invited their neighbors from. Um, from over in Lock Haven at the fire company at Citizens Fire Company, and they ended up celebrating together and recognizing this uh, decade or this uh, century-old line of duty death. Um, and they dug back even farther in the records and found out in the 50s they used to have a venison dinner, which was one of their fundraisers. So for their celebration of their 80th and in memory of this LODD, they decided to have a big venison dinner, and as as it would have it, is this not always the way it happened? In the middle of their dinner, the tones dropped. They exited the dinner for their celebration, went out and did the call, and came back and finished their celebration. So I, I got to tell you, this is grassroots America. You know, we're hearing so much about volunteers um, waning and not having as many. And here, here's a hamlet where they build a brand new fire station. It's beautiful. They're still operating, totally volunteer. And I got to tell you, I have worked with these guys now almost a decade. And this is one of the finest group of men that, and men and women that you will ever run across. Still running volunteer EMS, still running volunteer fire department. So I've got to just say hats off to the folks over there at Beach Creek Blanchard Volunteer Fire Company. Um, this is Main Street America and that makes us great in what we do, no doubt about it. It sure does. That is a great story, Chuck. And sometimes, don't you wish stories like this would actually make the real news? And uh, because it's nice to hear some positive things once in a while. And along those lines of volunteerism, we know what a challenge it is for fire, fire departments and ambulance services. And for that matter, any agency that relies on volunteers, it's really tough. But a little story I have for you, just in closing, out of uh, Bosra, Connecticut, uh, I've been to Connecticut many times and we have many clients up there um, who are part of volunteer organizations. Um, the town has recognized that the need and the importance behind the volunteers as I wish others would. And one of the things that the town of Bosra is doing is the Lechman up there have pledged to support the fire department with an ordinance that would reduce property tax uh, for by $1,500 per volunteer uh, over the next two years. And I think those are the things that really help bolster, uh, not so much the numbers, but also is a great way to say thank you. Because, you know, it, it's great to have a, an award ceremony once a year and a big dinner. Don't get me wrong, those are wonderful things and a plaque on the wall. But, you know, helping people survive within the community that they serve, it, you know, can you really put put a number on that. And I just think that it's great. So my hat's off to the town of Bosra in Connecticut, as well as any other community that may do something like this. But just recently um, in September, uh, the, the selectmen agreed to do this for their, their servants, of their volunteer servants of their community, both in the fire and the ambulance service. So kudos to them and kudos to all the agencies uh, that we mentioned today in positive news. Hey, uh, I think it's my time to really have a little fun here with you two. And uh, so this is the uh, EMS word of the day. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, this could be, 
This is, this is actually, I look forward to this so much. Ed, you did a great job on your talk. Don't get me wrong, but this is my time to shine. <laughs> there goes the sphincter tone now. <laughs> look out, Ed. <laughs> so, uh, as you know, from our last broadcast, I have now subscribed to Word Genius of the Day. <laughs> and every day in my personal email, I get a new word. A few of them I've actually known. Most, I have had no clue. So, for those that I've had no clue about, I've pulled a couple out for each of you today. So, Chuck, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to give, give Ed a break here for a moment, but All right. I'll get him after you. Okay. So, I need you, I'm going to give you a word, and I'm going to ask you to use it in a sentence uh, that has an EMS flavor to it. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm going to give you the word and then we're going to take, you guys can take a break because then I'm going to have to spell it to our crowd because it's, <laughs> it's a big word. It's a big word. All right. And the word is phantasmagoria. Phantasmagoria. And my word genius says it's a noun originated in the French and Greek early 19th century. Uh, so, uh, it is spelled P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M-A-G-O-R-I-A. -A -A. Chuck, I'll give you just a few moments to think about this. Okay, Chuck, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, you know, I am a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. So, uh, the P-H, uh, my, my mind first goes to... Uh, the day that the Eagles won the Super Bowl, which will go down in infamy, uh, Super Bowl 52, the entire city was in phantasmagoria, but that's not a medical term. So that's correct. I got I to gotta come up, but I couldn't resist the fly, Eagles fly. So uh, we're going to beat up on the Cowboys this week. It's a done deal. So anyhow, now that I've made that statement, um, let's see. Um, the... Um, the traumatic injury involved a large amount of phantasmagoria <laughs> leaking from the wound. I don't know, Gary. I'm really oh out. Probably 800 miles away from what yeah. that really is. Yeah, I was at MedExpress last night. Hey, I got a bad case of phantasmagoria. <laughs> <laughs> There's penicillin for that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Chuck, that was nice try. No cigar. Nice. Yeah, try. Um, so I'll try to try to give give you an idea here. Um, here's the here's what it means: uh, a dreamlike state in which images, both real and imagined, blur together. So, on the patient's ride to the hospital, he unfocused his eyes so that the lights raced past outside in a brilliant phantasmagoria. <laughs> I've had a couple of patients like I that. I bet you have. I bet we all have. I bet we all have. Well, I Chuck. My conversation with the CFO this morning, I think that's what he was experiencing. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to put that on the cutting room floor, yes. Chuck. I don't know. Maybe. Yes. John, if you're listening, we love yeah. you. Seriously. Yep. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> At least I do. I don't know about Ed, but. <laughs> oh, God. Well, Chuck, uh, I, you're pretty much 0 for 3 in the words that I've given you yeah. so far, so keep at it, buddy. Well, well at thank it. you. Yeah. All right, let's see how our new partner in crime does. Oh, Ed, no. are you ready for this one? Okay. I'm sitting down, thank goodness. All right, this is an adjective. 
uh, that was the origin is uncertain, mid-19th century, they suspect. Um, but again, in an EMS flavor, please use the word flummoxed. That is F-L-U-M-M-O-X-E-D, flummoxed. Flummoxed. Well, I was a, uh, I was a secondary education major with a minor in history um, uh, in undergrad school, but that doesn't take me back to that era, and that word is not coming to mind. Um, um, well, you know, the, the closest word I can think of is uh, it's a word my dad used to use all the time when he was, uh, when he was uh, uh, amazed by something, and he would say flabbergasted. Is that a word you guys are familiar with? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah at the what your mother spent on shoes last month <laughs> so, um, you know uh i'm gonna guess it's somewhat close to that so i'm gonna guess it's something along those lines so how about if we say um uh the paramedic responded and following an interview with the patient uh was flummoxed at the fact that the patient described um uh, a long medical history of poison ivy. I don't know. You know what? I got to give you some credit on that a little bit. Chuck, you are really behind the eight ball. <laughs> uh -oh. So it, I can go with this. It's, the meaning is totally confused or bewildered. So, uh, yeah. So, pretty good. Chaco for three, add one for one. Yes, yes. Oh, that's the old blind squirrel can get a nut any time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was worried when you talked about your dad that we were going to be one of those pull your finger jokes because I can see Flummox being that too. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I kind of held my breath there for a minute. <laughs> What oh. is happening here? <laughs> it's, it's bad. It's so it's bad. bad. All right, gentlemen. So before we sign off, uh, anybody got anything crazy? Any crazy news stories you've read lately out there at all? Uh, Chuck, I'll defer to you. You got anything? Yeah, well, I picked up a story from Idaho. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of serious, but it's also uh, very amazing. Um, there was actually a hunter who went down in the mountains uh, during uh, the recent snowstorm, the end of September. And um, they, they put out a call for responders. Uh, no airships, funny, we talked about air today. No airships were able to fly. And uh, this was during a time when they had some kind of homecoming in this little community. They had no people able to be committed. So uh, this guy had some serious injuries. He fell off a mule and landed on a tree stump and ended up having major chest injuries, uh, including hemonumo, uh, uh, um, and um, they, they set up camp overnight. Um, they put out a call, and responders from about three or four different locales, it's amazing, but got together, including, I don't know if you guys know uh, um, uh, Van Der Esch, uh, the football player from the Cowboys, Leighton Van Der Esch. His father was actually one of the responders, it was a, um, a hike of several hours back into the, the hills, and they got out there, and um, he made it through the night. He actually picked up the phone, this hunter, and called his family and said, look, I may not make it. I'm out here. They can't get me out. When they got out there, they, they really would have liked to put him in a KED device, but they didn't have it. So they took the framework from their backpacks 
and they fashioned a ked, put him on a mule, and took him out about five hours out of the mountains, brought him out to an ambulance. They used the mule as an ambulance. Now, you know, uh, I got to tell you, that is thinking on the fly. So it's offbeat, but I got to give these guys kudos. First of all, in a snowstorm, it was very treacherous. They got together and they found a way, you know, and we often talk in EMS about uh, being MacGyver. Well, this is the ultimate MacGyver move, got to tell you. But I, I was so impressed when I read this story. And, you know, the guy then, of course, gave kudos. Uh, one of the jokes was um, uh, Van Der Esch's uh, father on the way back kept things light for the patient by telling him he had to make it back by six o'clock on Sunday because he needed to see his kid play on TV. <laughs> and they, literally they said that's what kept it light and, and kept, the, kept the patient from panicking. And there was a doc that even responded and gave pain meds and anti-anxiety meds um, so the guy could stay calm. Just a great story once again about people who came together for a common purpose and made it work. Oh, that's a great story. Ed, you got anything for us? I do, actually, and staying with the theme of our, of our colleagues to the south down in West Virginia, um, this is a story from earlier this summer. Uh, the folks from Cabell County EMS, uh, uh, they were at the station, and a woman stopped by the EMS agency frantically pleading for help. Her dog, Charlie Boy, uh, had apparently ingested um, uh, some opioids and was unconscious. And so they approached the, the uh, medic who was on duty, and said, you got to do something. Don't you have that Narcan stuff? And of course, the medic was, was a little bit flummoxed by the request, um, uh, but said, you know, I've never thought about doing this uh, to a dog. And, and he wasn't really sure of the dosage, obviously, uh, but he elected to use kind of the, the human dosage, uh, you know, looking obviously probably at the weight of the dog. And uh, sure enough, Charlie Boy is alive and well today, and uh, the act, uh, the actions of the opioid were reversed, and uh, is a happy ending to the story. So not something to do every day, but um, great job. Some tremendous stories, gentlemen. Wow. Thanks, thanks for sharing those. Those, those are re really, really great stories. Thanks, thanks so much. Well, we've come to about just the end of our time here today, and uh, again, welcome to Ed. Ed, you make a great addition to our team. Thanks for being here, and you know we'll be mandating you're here on future episodes with us too as, as you know so uh thanks and chuck many thanks to you um always a pleasure to our listeners we really appreciate the fact that you've taken the time to download and and listen in i know it's a bit crazy at times and that's the way we like it uh to keep it light uh, as well as informative along the way so thanks to you uh please be sure to download um all our podcasts and i might uh, state here today that believe it or not this episode is our 100th podcast that we're doing and so, so exactly so we've met the century mark here as far as our shows go so we'll continue to do more as they've been well received and we're excited and happy that our listeners are enjoying them so uh as chuck mentioned we're going to be in hershey here next week and we've got some other travel around the country at the air medical conference uh please stop by say hello to us uh your comments are always appreciated should you have any comments about any of our podcasts or require any information uh regarding revenue cycle management uh from quick med claims please feel free to call us at 1-800-901-1155 or email client services at quick med claims for now, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thanks to my colleagues here today. I really appreciate it. 
And we were so glad to have you. And remember, one more thing. Hey, be safe, be safe out, out there. there. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.